The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann, dedicated to teachers. Today on the Heinemann Podcast, Credo. I'm Brad from Heinemann. In 2013, Heinemann celebrated the legacy of Don Graves' pivotal research at a special breakfast during the National Council of Teachers of English Conference in Boston. Three years later, during the 2016 NCTE conference, we wanted to reprise this moment by inviting those in attendance to consider the theme of Credo. The event was hosted by Tom Newkirk and Penny Kittle and featured Heinemann authors Catherine Bomer, Smokey Daniels, Georgia Hurd, Allison Marchetti, Rebecca O'Dell, Cornelius Minor, and Heinemann Fellow Kimberly Parker. We begin with Heinemann's general manager Vicki Boyd welcoming the audience in Atlanta and speaking to Don Graves' legacy. Welcome and good morning. Thank you so much for getting up early on the Friday morning of NCTE, but I can't think of a better way to start. I'm Vicki Boyd. I'm the general manager at Heinemann. Three years ago, Heinemann hosted the first of its kind Don Graves Living Legacy Breakfast at NCTE in Boston. And uh, this was a, in celebration of the 35th anniversary of uh, the, the publication of Don's research. And it turned out to be a landmark event. Uh, those of you who were there, you know what I'm talking about. It's something we still talk about today. And uh, through the testimonials of uh, first-generation descendants of Don's, uh, Lucy Calkins, who's uh, thank you, Lucy, for joining us this morning. It's our honor to have you here. Uh, <clears throat> Nancy Atwell, Mary Ellen Jacoby, and others, uh, they reminded us of the intellectual and spiritual inheritance Don left us and challenged us to cherish that inheritance and to see that it continues to inform the work that we do. And three years later, uh, we celebrate no particular milestone this morning, and yet uh, this, the time seems right uh, to come together uh, in Don's memory, uh, this time to explore the theme of credo, of belief as the bedrock of a practice through which uh, we exercise our highest principles, uh, the theme of Don's presence, how he made himself completely available to others, uh, teachers and children, uh, his tremendous energy. Uh, he had a presence that would just charge a room, and his radical humanity. Uh, Don wanted to embrace everybody. And these are attributes uh, we believe Don felt were absolutely essential to fulfill education's highest purpose, uh, to help children encounter their, their deepest humanity, uh, to see themselves as heroes in their stories, as capable and worthy of lives, of significance and meaning. Don taught us we are here to lift each other up. This is the kind of being in the world that we at Heinemann strive to be about in the way we work together as colleagues, in the way we devote ourselves to teachers in the work of our authors. We aim to make Heinemann a living monument of Don's work. We are delighted to invite you into this conversation with us this morning 
and to have Tom Newkirk and Penny Kittle repeat their roles as hosts of this morning's uh, breakfast. Uh, you know Tom and Penny. Did I get a whoop? Would that... <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's that kind of event, so go right ahead. Um, Tom and, and Penny, you know, as, as uh, gifted teachers, uh, they are deep readers, insightful writers, thought leaders, sense makers for all of us. Uh, both will tell you how profoundly influenced uh, they were by Don's work, even raised by the Dons, uh, as they say, Don Graves and his closest colleague, Don Murray. And they share something else. Uh, they are individual of deep conviction, and I can think of no two inheritors of Don's work better positioned to guide us through a meditation on credo at a time when we have never needed it more in loving memory of Don Graves. Please join me in thanking Tom Newkirk and Penny Kittle for hosting this morning. Good morning. I echo Vicki's um, thanks for you giving up a little bit of sleeping in time to join us here today. I look around the room and it reminds me of my first NCTE, which I came to because Don asked me to chair his session. <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. It meant a room, wall-to-wall people, and all these faces I recognized from the back of books. Um, but it became an annual event that Don and I would travel to NCTE together. And he would um, always prepare meticulously. He would have loved being here. I said that to someone, and then I thought, but he is here. Look at all of this brilliance in the room. So Don, filled with joy and generosity and the biggest heart, always, always looked at kids and said, they can do it if we let them. Children want to write. Children want to read. Um, I don't know how many of you know that he was a preacher before he was a teacher. And where I live, I moved to New Hampshire um, when I was 35 years old with my young kids, my husband, looking for Don, of course. When When he said we were moving to New Hampshire, I started stalking him. And... When I finally found him and we met, um, I would bring my kids, they were five and eight at the time, up to his house, and Betty would take them into the garden to find um, squash and gourds. They would carve them into houses with doors while Don and I read writing and talked about our writing on his deck. And that generosity for someone he didn't know um, just became a theme in my life. How do I open up space the way he opened it up for me to write what I knew I needed to say, but had no idea how to write it about what was happening in my classroom? And so one of the things Don asked me to do, and and I just want to say that any time Don asked me to do anything, I did it. Um, But early in our relationship, he would once in a while be preaching at the tiny little white church with the spire in Jackson, New Hampshire. And I would go watch him preach. And he stopped me after church one day and said, so I put our names in to co-teach Sunday school. (laughs) I was like, oh, no. Um, But planning Sunday school, teaching of these adorable little ones with Don Graves, and then teaching and watching him on his knees and watching. um, One time, all I remember are cotton balls. And I don't know what we were trying to do, but they were all over the room. And the kids were going crazy. And Don and I are looking across the room at each other like, yeah, we really don't know how to do this. (laughs) But Don had such a lean in, as someone said, spirit about him, that it created that instant, instant connection. One last thing is that um, we, on nine, right after 9-11, when we were coming down to the conference, we arrived in Manchester, New Hampshire for our flight, and there were um, National Guard men with huge guns 
everywhere. And Dawn and Betty and I were anxious, as so many of us were, on that first trip. And we got to our gate, and Dawn pulled out Garrison Keillor's good poems, and he started reading poetry. And in 2001, people weren't on their smartphones. Our entire gate listened to Dawn Graves read poetry to settle our souls as we got ready to get on a plane and come here. So NCT is such an important place um, for you to settle your soul into the work that you need to do with kids. So it's my pleasure to introduce our first reader of the Credo, um, Catherine Bomer. But my introduction is really an induction, okay? Because at UNH we have something, it's a term Mike Michaud, a um, student and colleague of mine, uh, called the, the UNH Writing Tribe. And we usually think of the Writing Tribe as people who've been to UNH or taught at UNH or come to the summer programs. But Catherine Bomer, you are part of the UNH Writing Tribe. When I read Hidden Gems, I thought it just so exemplified Don's belief in finding the good in writing and building upon what is positive and how you just took that idea and ran with it. And then <clears throat> The Journey is Everything. If any of you haven't read The Journey is Everything, get it, read it. It's just fantastic. But I think it so exemplifies the spirit that writing is an exploration. It's not a fixed form, that language is open. Uh, Don Murray kept talking about expecting the unexpected, uh, op you know, <laughs> writing to find out what you, what you know, what you, what you think. And I think in that book, you capture that so beautifully. So I think it just embodies certain values and spirits. Not that we want to take claim for, credit for your work, but it's just fantastic. And I just as evidence, I'd just like to read a couple sentences from the beautiful ending to this book. Uh, if the hero of the essay is the author, as William Gass suggests, then young people must have as many places as possible to be heroes. And if the essay is a journey, then young people must be able to take a hero's journey to find out what they think and who they are. Writing to discover what we care about is brave and also pleasurable and makes an external record of a most beautiful human endeavor, which is to think and question, to change our minds, to be surprised at how much we didn't know we knew, to taste ourselves, and to find what we are hungry for. Catherine Bowman. Not fair. <laughs> I've been crying since the very first second I walked in the room, basically. and. <laughs> And now I'm completely a puddle. Um, we need a new metaphor for, uh, I, I feel I need a new metaphor for standing on the shoulders, um, being a part of a river, a, a stream of spirit, leaning into the spirit of Don Graves. I'm let's find a metaphor for what this is, this, uh, this sense of a spirit in the room that, that engulfs everyone. I'm looking across this room and so many friends and so many people who um, should also all be up on the stage with these rock stars. Good morning. Uh, my credo, my belief is absolutely in the power of children's writing voices. I believe in the topics that they love to write about. I believe in their quirky, lyrical, open-hearted, silly, goofy ways of writing about those topics. Um, Don Graves said, and many have already quoted this, that people want to write and children want to write. He said, the desire to express themselves is relentless. 
And that is so true. Kids want to write poems and fantasies and television scripts and uh, lately letters to the president-elect. And they want to write when they feel, don't feel caged in by a grade or a rubric or by a formula or a worksheet. They love to write when every misspelled word or dangling modifier is not circled in red like the Target store sign. <laughs> I believe that we must teach our eyes and our ears to find that the beauty and the worth and the brilliance in their writing, in every student's writing, because it's so easy to, um, to marvel at the, the, um, the children whose words just are like diamonds spilling across the page, you know, we just gasp because they're such beautiful writers. It's easy, I mean, it's harder when the, the writing stutters or the student is um, writing about uncomfortable topics or in unconventional ways. Uh, in my K2 classroom years ago, uh, there were my students, you know, unbeknownst to me, because <laughs> it would never have been allowed, were taunting uh, Max, who arrived in the middle of the year. Um, they were telling him on the playground, you know, out of my earshot, telling him, uh, calling him squid for some reason. I don't know what squid meant really, but they were calling him that, and they told him that he was smelly, and that he wore rotten clothes, and that he was stinky. And one day, Max just had it. And he took a piece of paper and a big black marker and in shaky capital letters with uh, some very creative spelling wrote, my name is not squid. And he found, he got some tape and he hung it upright on my teaching easel so it could not be missed. And Max's words, he found his voice, my name is not squid, and his words changed our community. So I believe that writing is a way children's voices come into power. I think it's writing is a social act, a personal act, a spiritual act, and even a political act. I believe that children's writing is one way that can remind us we're all human. Thank you so much. I have the privilege of introducing Rebecca Odell and Allison Marchetti, who came to the Boston event three years ago, sat at one of these tables, and Tom ended that event with a charge to the room. And if you were here, you remember, it's on you. To carry this legacy forward, it's on you. These two girls, I'm sorry, you are that so young to me. These two girls went back to their classrooms determined to write about the work they were doing in using mentors to guide writers. Um, in schools where people often feel like they've got it all figured out, these two ladies transformed what they were doing. But then, in the spirit of Don Graves, they didn't just write a book, and it's a beautiful book, Writing with Mentors. They then created this mentor text Dropbox that is online to give to teachers by genre, by technique, by author, a way to organize and then access mentor texts across all kinds of genres, across um, time periods. It is a breathless collection that so to me represents the generosity of Don Graves. He would give his work away in so many ways simply to move it forward. So these two ladies have moved it forward, and I present them to you with great pleasure. Years ago, I spent my planning periods looking for other careers. I was isolated, exhausted. 
One day, Rebecca passed me right beside them, and in that moment, everything changed. Penny Kittle spoke back to us the words that were on our hearts. She reminded us that we weren't alone. She showed us that we were part of a long tradition of teachers who draw strength and inspiration from one another. Penny became part of our family. Don Graves believed in family, too. Folded in between the lines of his first vision, students using their voices to tell the stories that matter, was a second vision. A vision for a connected family tree of teachers working together. Inspiring one another. Supporting one another. And building a better future for students together. This is why Don and Mary Ellen Jacoby spent hours filming conversations with her students. And this is why Penny and Tom spent years tracing Don's legacy so we could learn again from his transformative work. This is why we run to one another's rooms in the precious minutes between classes to share a new idea. A success. A wondering. This is why we plan together in the late evening after a long day's work. Why we write together in the early morning hours when our houses are still asleep. We do these things because we believe in the magic that happens when teachers create something together. We have all been lost. We've all wondered if teaching is our true calling, if we're making a difference. But the thing that brings us back to our senses, the thing that makes us feel alive again and reminds us of why we chose this profession in the first place is our family. Don, Tom, Penny, me, you, and the friends you brought with you today joining our ever-widening family tree. Family is what we teachers need all the time. It's our past, our present, our future, the one constant that drowns out the doubt and exhaustion. The family that reminds us who we are, where we came from, and where we're going together. There's so much to say about Smokey Daniels, other than the fact he's got the coolest name in literacy education. <laughs> Kind of, just the name reminds, makes you feel like a late afternoon drinking hard liquor, you know. So. <laughs> um, just want to say a couple things about Smokey. Um, uh, I was remind, when I think of Smokey's work, I was reminded of Janet Emig. And she taught, uh, you know, was a great researcher and taught, te- you know, was a great teacher of teachers. And she'd often begin her class, and she'd be sitting at her desk, <coughs> or at a desk. And teachers would walk in, and on the board she had written, I'm writing, please join me. I'm writing, please join me. And the teachers would be a little bit surprised and then get down and join her. And I think that that might be a, a motto for Smokey, you know, because it seems to me so much of his work is about collaboration. You know, you go back to literature circles, you go, you know, and all the very practical activities of, of people working together. So I think, I think that's a, a theme of his work. And I think another theme of his work is, is uh, creating a space for the student who, who, who's not the star student, who doesn't fit in. And Smokey wrote something about this to me, and I'll just read a little bit of what he wrote to me and then pass on the baton to him. Um, he wrote, I was an unsuccessful student during my K-12 years, and I hated going to school every day. I graduated from high school in the bottom 10% of my class. So I always looked at education through the lens of an outlier, not a high flyer. I developed a lasting affinity for other kids like me, the strugglers, the troublemakers, the disaffected, the smart asses. 
So at the most basic level, my work and the subtext of all my books has been to make school more welcoming, more engaging, and can I use the F word here? More fun. <laughs> I'm stuck with that I've stuck with that focus for 47 years and think in some scattered places and auspicious moments it has worked for kids and teachers, and I think it's worked a lot more often than that. Smokey? <clears throat> My credo, be more like Don Graves. I'm sitting beside Don at the autographing table. We both have new books out. In front of him stretches a line of dedicated fans that runs through the conference center, out into the lobby, down the street, to the airport. <laughs> In front of me looms an hour of utter privacy. <laughs> or or the opportunity to learn from the inadvertent mentor sitting next to me. Um, Don's signing, of course, goes on forever. He's unhurried. He takes time with every person. I become exhausted just watching this relentless barrage of kindness. <laughs> Finally, the last teacher in line arrives in front of Don. She's bursting with excitement. Dr. Graves, I have to tell you something. He goes, what? She said, last week, I let my kids pick their own topics for writing. And Don goes, really? <laughs> tell me all about it. And she does for another 10 minutes. Uh, evening in a summer cottage gathered are Don and several other speakers from the institute we're holding. I'm hoping for some time with Don myself, but I can't seem to peel him away from my daughter, Marnie, then age eight. They have grabbed two wicker chairs and tucked themselves into a far corner of the porch, and I notice from across the room, Marnie is doing almost all the talking. <laughs> An, a packed audience at NCTE, at the peak of his powers, Donald Graves walks out into the center of the room wearing his customary short sleeve white shirt and a tie, no jacket. There are long waves of applause. He settles himself, he looks around the crowd, and finally says, what shall we talk about today? And then, for an hour, he answers every person's question, addresses every worry, salves every fear, with gentle wisdom and humor. This is Teacher Church, and Don is our pastor. Thus, my educational credo, respect children, listen first, stay curious, be generous, and follow your heart. Our next speaker. I first met on the pages of her Book Love Foundation grant application. A teacher in Boston, Kim Parker, exemplifies the reach and her relentless determination that persistent achievement gaps do not have to be the story of her work. And so we read an application of a teacher who believes that every one of her kids in Boston will read, will read a lot will write, and will gain the power of their own voices. This is absolutely the spirit of Don's work. And as I went to the board meeting that night, determined that Kim was going to get a library, but I'm one voice on a large board, 
I um, read portions of her her application to the board, I kept saying, listen, listen to the power of what she's doing. She is relentless and she's determined. And granting her a Book Love Foundation grant of 500 books um, was a small little drop in a pond that she created out of the goodwill and out of her absolute determination that she would reach every kid. And it's been such a blessing to know Kim Parker and I'm thrilled that you get to know her too. Good morning. Zavon tells me that he never knew that reading books could matter so much, could be so enjoyable. He is a young man who is black, brilliant, and bored. He is a writer and reader for whom schools seem to be increasingly less designed. When he disappears from my class without any explanation, I learn a few weeks later that he has been assigned to an out-of-school placement program, joining other boys who are likely as black, brilliant, and bored as he. I believe in rage, and I believe in action. I believe in a world where staying woke matters. My most essential work is making classroom spaces where kids like Zavon can read and write in ways that matter to them, from diss tracks to letters to the local police department reminding them that black lives matter too, and that wearing their hoodies is not a crime, to tweets to favorite authors thanking them for books that are just for him, to books that affirm, reflect, and extend his existence as a brilliant black boy. Opening up spaces inside classrooms where they can speak a variety of Englishes as they explore the origins of abonics, where they can engage in delight with canonical and multicultural text and write about their understandings, and where they are creators of text that validate and stretch their identities is some of the work that my soul must have. Though Zavon never returned, I continue to hold space in my classroom for other young people who have similar needs and desires, who are hungry for the diverse texts that reach them. I continue to hold on to a belief and a dream that the work I do must be as diverse as the students I teach, as escapist, as validating, as powerful as the texts they read, as whole, as free, as happy, as we all wish, hope, and need to be. Thank you. I mentioned to people at Heinemann that I was interviewing, going to introduce Cornelius Minor. They said, oh, you got to meet Cornelius. He's great. It just, and everybody had a story to tell about Cornelius. And so I'm so happy to have a chance to introduce you, Cornelius, and have a chance to meet you. Um, clearly one of the great emerging, powerful, bold voices in composition and, and literacy. Um, if you go to his blog, just he has just all the amazing things he does to bring forms of popular culture and critical 
critical issues, to, uh, to draw in students and to, to bring in students who may be alienated as uh, a number of speakers have spoken who feel that school is not for them. Finding ways to work for cultural affiliations, skateboarding, hip hop, rap, you know, there's, there's got to be a way in and Cornelius is going to find it. Um, now, uh, Vicki Boyd also uh, had this recollection of this, uh, this this wrote this about Cornelius, and I'm going to just read what she's written. Um, when I think of Cornelius, for example, the thing about him that reminds me of Don is something he calls cultivating my great person persona. It's this idea that in order to do the kind of ennobling work that is worthy of the profession, Cornelius believes you have to be aware of how you're developing yourself to become the best version of you that you can possibly be. You have to cultivate your great person persona, your highest self, leaning forward toward the most excellent version of you that you could possibly be become. I love that, the energy in it and the pure idealism the pure idealism of it evokes Don's energy for me. Cornelius, great to have you here. So I am from Liberia, a fiercely independent and resilient little country off of the coast of West Africa. My country was founded by escaped American slaves who left the United States. My great-grandfather was one of those people. At the time, his ability to read was a capital offense, and his insistence that he be treated as a human being made him ill-suited for life in America. Second-class citizenship didn't agree with him. Last week, Americans watched high-minded democracy embrace its basis instinct, fear. Similarly, when I was in elementary school, I watched the dream of Liberia crumble under the weight of something just as sinister, war. I almost died, and my peers who were lucky enough did. My peers who lived were drugged by warlords and forced to fight. Those of you who follow world events know that mine is the generation that became child soldiers. We have been fighting since we were 10. My parents smuggled me here to this very city to be safe. Safety was short-lived. I attended Florida A&M University, a historically black college in Northern Florida. I went to school in the 90s and though we didn't have the words for terrorism yet, my campus was bombed by assailants who held calculatedly intolerant views about black folks and literacy. Again, the possibility of death crept awfully close, and a question formed. Why does the world keep trying to kill me? To pursue that line of inquiry is to walk a path of anger. And so I made a better question. Why do I keep living for this? I believe that education is not knowledge nor is it preparation for an abstractly defined real world. We are living in a world that is far too real already. Everything is a text to be read, relationships, situations, social and political systems. The power to read doesn't only give us the ability to shape our understanding, but it catalyzes our desire to shape reality. Good teaching amplifies that desire. Conversely, Teaching as we have always done it or teaching for compliance extinguishes it. 
As such, we do not teach for mastery. We teach for revolution. <laughs> if we are not brokering in lessons of compassionate disruption, then we have welcomed the oppressive history handed to us by our grandparents. If we are not fully inclusive, then we are resurrecting apartheid one classroom at a time. If we are not practicing, teaching, or showing fierce, selfless love, we do not deserve our licenses. So though we emerge from different histories, ultimately we come from words. Words spoken in hushed tones between lovers. Words offered by our ancestors as prayers, prayers for something better. We come from words that have been weaponized to keep us safe, to keep us whole, to keep us going. I believe that when we use those words to push past what is, toward what can be, we can be something much bigger. Thanks. What an honor to listen to every one of you. Um, I'm going to introduce our last credo speaker, Georgia Hurd, who a longtime friend of Don Graves. Um, Don didn't just love poetry, he loved poets. He spoke their words, memorized their words. He wanted to be a poet. He wrote poetry again and again and again and often didn't publish it. But if you've read his work, his last book was only poetry. He wrote in the minds of children, calling it a sea of faces. And every day he would send me a poem that he was working on for the book. And learning to um, appreciate what Georgia could do with children and with the world came for me entirely from my relationship with Don. He brought his cover of The Energy to Teach to my house the first time he saw it because Georgia designed it, this beautiful painting that covers that book. And he said, I'm, I'm coming over, drove up and was giddy with the beauty she created in color and the way it represents presented to him exactly what the book was full of, the energy, the joy, what we all need in this work. And so knowing Georgia and knowing Georgia's poetry came, became for me a way to kind of ground what Dawn was teaching me in my classroom. And I started simply using Georgia's poetry and the poetry that Georgia pointed me to in order to get my students to embrace what the beauty and peace and love of words could do to an experience or an idea. With great pleasure, I give you Georgia Hurd. I believe in those who believe that they have nothing to say, nothing to write about, no words inside them. I believe in Shantae, a girl with a fragile face and dark eyes who writes on her heart map about her mother who died. My mom made me star cookies, and whenever I look at the stars in the sky, I think about my mom. I believe in Peter, who watched the snails slide along the sidewalk on the 4th of July because his words will ultimately light up the sky. I believe in the strugglers, the stragglers, the blank page starers, the heartbroken, sitting head in hands while a poem knocks at their chest like a dove caught in a cage wanting to fly. I believe in Teshiger, who inspired by Langston writes, I am turning the corner looking for myself. In the thin-skinned girl who always has a poem up her sleeve, 
I believe in Celestino, a gang member in Phoenix who, in his short life, found his voice through poetry. I believe in the zip-lipped and the loner sitting at lunch by herself, notebook at her side, who has already started singing the notes. The angry one who hurls his paper across the room after he writes, why did dad leave? The bullied boy who plays hide and seek with his feelings and will find that words have the power to fight back. I believe in the you will never understand me girl who plucks words out of her days like stars. The boy who found his vocation at age five and writes, I want to be a dinosaur skin finder. <laughs> Find the skins of dinosaurs and stretch them across the bones in museums. <laughs> I believe in the believers who look out windows and up at the stars and after a snowstorm, right? The experience of the world has changed. The confused, the confident, and the ones with po poems hidden in their hearts. I believe in the boys and girls who sit eyes glazed, half asleep, waiting for the words to come to them, waiting for their dreams to talk to them. I believe in the voices who are silent. I believe in leaning down and listening to the whispers of all their stories. Thank you. I would certainly like to thank all the speakers. Fantastic to be a, be a part of this with you. And Vicki, to you for being such an outstanding leader of Heinemann. Such a wonderful privilege to work with you. It's difficult to close this present, this, uh, this session um, at this time. Uh, and I remember in three years ago, uh, November 22nd, 2013, November 22nd, a significant day, the 50th anniversary of the killing of John F. Kennedy, uh, we were holding the NCT just two miles from where Kennedy was born. And I thought at that time to take some words from his inaugural address about a torch being passed and to think that a torch needs to be passed to a new generation of, of authors and it's so thrilling to have Rebecca and Allison here to show that this the, the torch is being passed and this new generation is coming forward, Cornelius. Uh, and I thought today we're two miles from the birthplace of Martin Luther King. And this is kind of a coincidence that's kind of stuck with me because I think that the call to political action that he gave is one that we have to pay attention to at this moment. Uh, I had never anticipated making any kind of political comment at the end of this session when, I, when we were setting it up, but it seems to me necessary because of no, what happened on November 8th and what happened leading up to November 8th. So bear with me because I think we were all troubled by the crossing of so many lines that it's okay to bully, to insult, to threaten, to discriminate, and to just completely ignore factuality, to see all of these values trampled, to see, and then to see an army of enablers and apologists saying, it's okay. He didn't mean that. I was just joking. Isn't that always the excuse of a bully? I was just joking. You just don't take it seriously, right? Uh, and to see so many 
who we know and care about being suddenly vulnerable if they aren't stereotypically American. Uh, to see, you know, against all factuality, a presidential candidate arguing for the return of stop and frisk. And if Cornelius and I are walking down the street, guess which one of us is going to be stopped and frisked? So it seems to me that we have to move forward and we have to learn to march. We have to learn how to show solidarity. We have to show how we can link arms and perhaps learn to sing some old protest songs. We have to act. I think we have to act in big ways and we have to act in small ways. And I want to talk about some maybe smaller ways in which we could act. I think we have to cultivate the practice of deliberate acts of kindness. Deliberate acts of kindness. And what I mean by that is if you go back to that initial video in Don Graves, the 30 minutes that Don Graves spent with that beginning teacher. Okay. And I remember like Don Murray's um, memorial, you know, he had this giant ceremony, there's this giant ceremony at UNH. And I was looking around and you know, listening to people's stories. And some people who had these great stories of Don knew him a lot and spent a lot of time with him. But many of them only spent maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes with him. There was some time when he made a phone call, when he, when he invited them down to coffee at the bagelry. It was a short period of time. But 20 years later, they remembered that time. It was pivotal. And I think as teachers, we often know it's that small, often that small extra step we take that, that lasts, that people remember forever. Um, when, I, when I was starting uh, my career at UNH, and I'd do a presentation, Don Graves or Don Murray might call me afterwards and say, how did it go? And I, I say deliberate acts of kindness because sometimes in the busyness of our work, we don't take time to think, who can I reach out to? You know, is there a new teacher that might need some time you know, to stop by and say how, how are things going? If the guidance counselor just handled a difficult thing, have we told him that we recognize that? You know, have we taken that time? And I think for some people, maybe it's an, an automatic thing, but I think for a lot of us, we have to sit back and say, okay, who can I reach out to? Who can I help? And I know my mother, who was an NCT member, she always wanted to come to convention, never made it. Uh, and in, in uh, 1970, you know, as a birthday present, my 22nd birthday present, gave me a membership to NCT, and I've held it for 46 years now. <laughs> But she was always wonderful at, if a new kid came into class, she would be very deliberate about helping that kid become settled in the class. You know, where that kid sat, spending time, spending time with that kid to catch up and know what the routines of the class were. And her, her students, when I'd come back, you know, after she passed away, they would talk to me about that. That's what I mean by deliberate acts of kindness. And I think that's one of the most powerful things to do. Who can we reach out to? But not get caught up in the business of our lives. Step back and kind of uh, make those acts, to be, to be deliberate about that. Um, I think we need to speak up. And I think that... <clears throat> I don't think we need to speak up. We need to speak up. Okay, let's not hedge it. Um, and I think we need to speak up nationally. But I think that looking forward, a lot of the action is going to be locally. I, I'm not, I don't have great confidence in the, in the and not that we should ignore what's happening nationally, but I think school boards, 
town councils, state governments, a lot of things are gonna be happening there. I'm on a school board and I, I'm, I know firsthand how powerful an organized group of educators, parents who do their homework, who come and wanna ask for change, how powerful that can be. We had it in our own school, uh, you know, it's forever, you've had the only two foreign languages are, are French and Spanish. Now, is that what the world is now, that the only two languages you should learn are French and Spanish? And groups came forward and says, let's get Chinese in the schools, and we did. They pushed it, we, we responded to it. I think there's action that could be taken, you know? Solar panels and, you know, solar heating in the schools. They may sound like a small thing, but a lot of times the local, the local actions might have more impact upon you than some of the national actions. So, so speaking up, you know, acting. And it doesn't have to be on the national stage, it could be at the local stage, but, but to speak up, you know, committees in schools, to, but to stand forward and speak up. And I just wanna say one final thing about speaking up, that for some people, I think speaking up and speaking out publicly and critically and politically is an easy thing to do. It seems natural. Maybe, maybe it's not, but some people seem to come to that naturally. I think a lot of us don't. And we have to take courage to do it. I think when we do it, we feel the quaver in our voice. We feel the shakiness in our knees. We feel it in the pit of our stomach. Maybe after we spoke, we said, oh, we could have said it better, you know. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but we have to do it. And I just want to close with a short quote from Eleanor Roosevelt that, that I find heartening. She writes, courage is more exhilarating than fear, and in the long run it is easier. I'm just going to say it again. Courage is more exhilarating than fear, and in the long run, it is easier. We do not have to become heroes overnight, just a step at a time, meeting each thing as it comes, seeing it's not as dreadful as it appeared, discovering we have the strength to stare it down. Thank you all for coming. Have a great conference. Thanks to everyone who presented their credos at the NCTE Don Graves Breakfast. If you'd like to know more about Don Graves, Tom Newkirk, Penny Kittle, or any of the other speakers, be sure to visit Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening to the Heinemann Podcast.